Galatians 2, uh, verses 11 to 21. This is Paul writing. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Well, hi everyone. My name's uh, Um We are going to begin with a short little clip from um, the 90s kind of hit show, Friends. Um, it, I think most of us probably know Friends, but if you don't know Friends, all you need to know is in this clip there's, there's two buddies. One is called Joey, he's wearing a blue blazer, he's a tour guide. The other is called Ross, he's wearing a white coat and he's a museum curator. Let's watch the clip. I'm saving a seat for my friend Ross. You mean Dr. Geller? Doctor? Oh, I didn't know he had a nickname. <laughs> oh, he won't sit here. Only the people in the white coat sit over there. And only the people in the blue blazer sit over here. Well, how, how come? That's just the way it is. That's crazy. Maybe it's crazy in a perfect world. A world without lab coats and blazers. But you're not in a perfect world. You in a museum now. <laughs> See that scientist with the glasses? He and I used to play together all the time in grade school. <laughs> but now... Peter! Hey, Peter! It's me, Rhonda, from PS129. I shared my pudding with you, man. I gave you my snack pack. See? He pretend he don't even hear me. I think everybody's pretending they don't hear you. <laughs> anyway, look, I don't know about you and your jackets and your separate tables, but Ross is one of my best friends. And if I save him a seat, I'm telling you, he will sit in it. 
Ross, Ross. Over here, man. I saved your seat. <laughs> That's okay. I'm cool over here. I'll catch up with you later, Joey. Uh, blue blazers and white coats. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get stuck into it. Uh, Heavenly Father God, we thank you for uh, your scriptures. We thank you that you speak and continue to speak uh, through them to us. And we want to be people who have um, ears but also minds and hearts and lives ready to change in response to what you say. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. <laughs> blue blazers and white coats. Jewish Christians and Gentile believers. The Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, what is it about human nature? Or more pointedly, what is it about Christians that makes us so quick to separate ourselves from one another and become segregated and even sectarian? I mean, why would Jewish Christians separate themselves from Gentile Christians if they have the one Lord? Why does the Apostle Paul feel so compelled to square off publicly against the Apostle Peter? in this section of Galatians, which I hope uh, you've got open in front of you. Now, you might be a practical person saying, who cares about the theoretical? We've got to fix the problem here. Uh, how do we fix this problem of, frankly, racist behavior where a Jewish Christian leader, no less, one of the pillars of the church, decides for some reason that he can't even sit down at the same table as Gentile Christians, that is, genuine believers from another culture? And you might be thinking, practical people, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I know what I'll do. I'll bring in Adam Goods. That's what I'll do. Goodsy. Uh, Sydney Swan, Indigenous Australian, Australian of the Year, in fact, uh, racially vilified, but he responds with dignity. I'm going to bring in Goodsy with his Swanies jersey on and a slogan that says something like, racism stinks or something like that. Interesting though, isn't it, the Apostle Paul doesn't bring in Goodsy, or whatever the ancient equivalent was, he brings in the Gospel. And you think, why? Well, as we've been saying for some weeks now, it's because the Gospel changes everything. It's at the heart of the matter, even a matter like racist or sectarian behaviour between Christians. And so when somebody like the Apostle Peter won't even sit down at the same table to share a meal with Gentile believers even though he'd previously done exactly that. The question, at the, the question at the kind of surface is, how are we going to fix this? But the more important question, and the one that will bring really lasting uh, and a better solution to that presenting issue is, how do I actually get right with God? See, it's about living by the gospel. We've been in Galatians now for a few weeks, and uh, last week we saw how the Jerusalem apostles, the apostle Peter, James, and John, extended to the Apostle Paul and Gentile believers more broadly a warm hand of fellowship. They believed in and shared one gospel, the good news about Jesus. And, and even more importantly, perhaps, though the Christian faith sort of sprung out of the Jewish nation, the Jewish Christians did not insist on the Gentiles becoming Jewish culturally. You know, being a Christian was a matter of deep soul turning and trusting in Jesus and in his life and his death and his resurrection. And external or cultural markers didn't make you a believer and they didn't stop you from being a believer. And you think, what a relief. 
right? Especially for Titus, the uh, uncircumcised Greek believer we thought about last week, because that mean, meant he didn't need to undertake a painful operation. But what also a relief for you and me? We don't need to become Jewish in order to be Christians. But after that really promising start, a potentially derailing situation emerged. The Apostle Peter, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, withdrew himself from fellowship with Gentile Christians. Now the Apostle Paul is going to show us today why the first question to answer is actually, how do we get right with God? Before thinking about how that affects us as individuals and how that affects our relationships with other believers and the world at large. So firstly then, how do we actually get right with God? How can we stand justified, made right, righteousified before him? Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul says to the Apostle Peter in verses 15 and 16. It's up here or in your Bibles. We, this is Paul speaking, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is talking to Peter. They're the we, there in verse 15, the Jews by birth, and Gentile sinners is kind of rightly in inverted commas. And he says, look, even though we are Jewish in our heritage, our Jewish traditions and laws, they're not the things that justify us. They're not the things that make us righteous or right with God. Something else does that. And that something else is faith in Christ. They too, the Jews by birth, along with Gentiles, put their trust in Jesus in order to be justified. In other words, it's the same for both groups. Now, this means it's going to be very key for us this morning to understand what it means to be justified and made right with God, because many Christians don't know the half of how good this really is. Most Christians are pretty familiar with the idea of uh, forgiveness, having God pardon their sins. In fact, that's the most common description of the gospel I've heard, I think. Uh, Jesus died to forgive my sins so I can go to heaven. But that's not all that justification is. So to understand justification, you have to travel kind of metaphorically to a courtroom. Now I'm guessing lots of you guys might have been to a courtroom at one time or another. Hopefully not as the accused, but you know, whatever. And they're interesting places, courtrooms. They're uh, formidable. They're quite foreign, actually. Uh, the last time I went to court, it was to support a friend of mine who had been in prison and was appealing a life sentence. So it was a pretty serious situation. But in the afternoon after lunch, I was sitting in a chair at the back of the courtroom and the sun was streaming through the window and it was making me feel a little bit um, you know, sleepy. And it was also bouncing off my watch face. I half-consciously realised that it was reflecting onto the wall immediately behind the three judges who were hearing the case. And if I moved my wrist, it would actually reflect onto their faces. And so without realising this, and without meaning to, I angled my wrist as a schoolboy might do to his teacher, and I realised that it was actually reflecting right into the eyes of the Chief Justice. Now, a split second later, I thought, that's a pretty stupid thing to be doing, Scott, and I stopped. Because this judge regularly put people away, sentencing people to life in prison. He potentially had the power over my future, certainly had the power over the future of my friend. (laughs) 
Put away the watchman. Now in justification, God is the judge. He holds the power over our futures. And we stand in the dock. And this time we are the accused. And we're guilty before him because of our sin. Not just our willful rebellion in a million small wrongs that we have done or the million small rights that we've failed to do, but really in the deep heart attitudes of our lives in which we've rejected God's rightful rule over our lives. So there's kind of little s sins, the things we do. There's also the big s sin, that kind of whole direction or orientation of our life where we say to God, thanks, I've got it, don't want to hear from you. And as the judge delivers his verdict, his decision, we think for sure we're guilty. For God surprisingly and amazingly declares us to be righteous. Not just forgiven, but righteous. And it works like this. We stand before God figuratively full of little minor signs. they, They represent our mistakes, our shortcomings, our sins. But when Jesus dies on the cross, God poured out the punishment that was due to us because of those shortcomings and sins, onto Jesus. And he effectively wiped all the little minuses away. And that's forgiveness, which is what almost all Christians will tell you about. But I think it's only half of it. Because when God the judge decides or declares us righteous or justified, he's not saying he's treating us as if we're just neutral. Very hard to get excited about being neutral. He's saying he's treating us positive, as if our our figurative circle was not just empty, but was actually full of little pluses, just like this. And not because of the good things that you or I have done, but because of all the good things that Jesus did in his life. You see, on the cross, Jesus didn't just take our sins away, but he actually gave us his righteousness, his perfectly obedient life. So that when God looks at us, he treats us as if we are just as perfect as Jesus was in his earthly life. That's the legal decision God has made. There is, in fact, two substitutions that happen on the cross. Our sin is substituted onto Jesus. And his perfectly obedient righteousness is substituted or swapped to us. So that if we turn and trust in Jesus, by faith, the words the Apostle Paul uses here, that's the decision God makes. That's his verdict. That's how he decides to treat us. Not just forgiven, not just neutral, but as positively righteous, obedient and perfect as Jesus was in his earthly life. Very few Christians in my experience realise that justification is more than mere forgiveness. But uh, we're at St Matthew's here, so of course we're ahead of the bunch. But even fewer really believe it in the depths of their souls that because of Jesus, God has decided to treat us or declared us to be as righteous as Jesus was in his earthly life. Wonderful, moving news, don't you think? That God could look upon you and me like that, even though we're familiar with our own shortcomings. Let's just have a look at the diagram again, though. What do you contribute to your justification? It's just a plate full of little minor signs, isn't it? And even the good things that you or I might do, if we do them in some kind of vain attempt to justify ourselves, well, they're minor signs as well because we've done them with the wrong motives. We contribute the minor signs. Jesus contributes the plus signs. That's what happens with justification. 
That's why it has to be by faith, because we bring nothing to the table. We just turn and we trust in Jesus and all that he has done for us, not in what we have done for him. And the Apostle Paul says, you know, this opens up a whole new life for us. It's not a life of sinless perfection. Of course, have a look at verse 17 in your Bibles. He'll admit that we'll still sin. We'll still be sinners as we seek to be justified by faith in Christ. I mean, that doesn't mean that Jesus promotes sin or serves sin in any way. But justification by faith opens up a new life. Let's have a look about, at how Paul explains that in verse 19 and 20. He says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying there's a figurative death and resurrection that's going on. The Apostle Paul says, through the law he died to the law. In other words, through his knowledge of the Jewish Old Testament law, he realized he could never keep it. I mean, not all 600 odd commands. It's just too much. And even if he could keep it externally, it was certainly too much to keep the spirit of all those laws. And maybe he even meant that the Old Testament law condemned him. It actually rendered him a guilty verdict. It sentenced him to death. Through the law, he died to the law. Which brings us to verse 20. And uh, verse 20 is one of Bruce's favourite verses. He has let me know that repeatedly during the week. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And Bruce generously offered it to me to preach. I'd have self selfishly kept it to myself but uh, he let me have it it's kind of typical of his generosity that I've discovered and actually typical of the generosity and warmth that he has for you all uh, he really loves you he also wants to keep giving me a hug which is it's just plain weird and I think bordering on assault in many jurisdictions nevertheless he loves you deep in his heart so I hope you're praying for him and uh, I think the reason why Clark likes verse 20 so much is because it says our justification opens up this wonderful new life. Paul not only died to the law, that old man, that old woman, the person we used to be, was not only crucified when Jesus was, but we live in this new life by faith in Jesus. I no longer live, not the old self that is, but this life that we now have, the bodily lives we now live, is really Christ living in us. We are different people now that we are justified by faith. Christ now lives in us and we now live for him and through him. It's a beautiful reality to grasp. And it's really what matters most. That we are justified by faith in Christ. That we are declared right because of Christ. That we are put in right standing with God because our bankrupt lives were swapped with his righteous life on the cross. We died with him in his death. And we now live for him and through him. But secondly this morning, what does this mean for us individually? What difference does Paul say this makes to our spiritual life? 
very quickly he says, it's pointless, it's fruitless trying to justify ourselves by observing Jewish traditions or in fact any other human effort at self-justification. Have a look at verse 16 in your Bibles, will you? What does he say over and over again? A person is not justified by observing the Old Testament laws. Or again in verse 16, we may be justified by faith, not by observing the law. Or verse 16 for a third time, by observing the law, no one will be justified. Three times he says it in verse 16. He says it again in verse 21. Have a look. If righteousness, that's the same idea as justification, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Keeping Jewish traditions, the Apostle Peter, observing the law, you Galatians, cannot justify you. But any human standards or efforts to justify ourselves before God won't work and are actually deeply offensive to him because they effectively say to God, I don't need your grace. And your son didn't need to die. And Bruce is going to talk more about faith and the law next week. Thirdly then, what does this mean for how we relate to other people? What difference does being made right with God through faith in Christ's work for us make for relations between uh, fellow believers and in fact with other people? And this is where that kind of deep issue that Paul's just been talking about hits that presenting issue of the Apostle Peter withdrawing from fellowship with Gentile believers. Because Peter was himself born a Jew, but after becoming a Christian, he eventually figured out that not only could Gentiles, like most of us, become believers, but we didn't have to become culturally Jewish in order to become Christians spiritually, if I can put it that way. And Peter was elsewhere quite relaxed about keeping all the Jewish laws, which is why Paul could say to him in verse 14, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. But certain fellows, Judaizing Christians, professing believers, they insisted that to really be a Christian, you need to adopt cultural Judaism in addition to Jesus. They came from Jerusalem, it seems. They assumed the authority of James, and put pressure on Peter to separate himself from those who hadn't adopted Jewish cultural traditions. And it says there in verse 12, Peter was afraid. Afraid of the pressure of this single issue group. And his fear led him to live out of alignment with his belief. Have you ever driven a car that keeps wanting to pull to the left or steering off course? Have you ever sat in church next to somebody who just couldn't clap in time to the beat? Yeah, lots of people have done that when they've sat next to me, I think. Uh, that's what he's saying. He's saying that Peter's behaviour didn't align or keep time with the truth of the gospel, which Peter obviously believed. And in his misalignment, he was acting with hypocrisy. Uh, insincerity, some versions say. Literally, he was play-acting. And because it was public, other Jewish Christians had followed Peter into his play acting. And because it was public, Paul had to address it publicly. It says there in front of them all, Hey Pete, how can it be that though you are Jewish and you live like a Gentile, you relax about all the cultural traditions, but because these guys have come in, you're now asking our Gentile brothers and sisters to become Jewish before you'll even have dinner with them? 
before you'll really share your life with them? <laughs> I mean, it sounds so stupid when you hear it like that. How can it be, Pete? Really? I mean, how can you look down on our fellow brothers and sisters because they're not Jewish and not willing to become Jewish, especially when you're not really willing to do it either? Pete, let me ask it another way. What's in your diagram? Read your justification. What do you bring to the table? You've got a whole bunch of minuses, just like them, don't you? And isn't any observance to the Old Testament law just another minus if you're doing that in a way to try and justify yourself? How can you act like you're better than the rest when we've all got a full plate of minuses? Aren't we all justified by faith in what Jesus has done for us, not what we've done for him? I mean, if I'm missing something, Peter, let me know. But man, it seems pretty clear to me. The racist stuff, it's not just about racism. It goes to the very heart of the gospel. No one is justified by observing the law. We are all here by faith. And uh, living the gospel, it actually means that we can't break fellowship with other believers where the issues aren't central to the gospel. We don't have to agree with them about everything. And we may not be able to work with them entirely, but we ought to be able to be united by the very heart of the gospel. You know, I've been part of church groups that have looked down on other church groups because they're too conservative in their expression. And I've been part of church groups that have looked down on other church groups because they've been too kind of free in their Christian expression. And one of the things that has been really uh, lovely and refreshing about coming to St. Matthews is to meet people from a variety of Christian backgrounds who have a variety of Christian expression who seem to me to get along well. Now, if my read of that situation is accurate, it's a really heartwarming sign. It really is. But I've had a number of people say to me, we're not really Sydney Anglicans here, Scott. And some people have whispered that to me, uh, as though there could be spies about. And I thought, how do you know I'm not a spy? You know, I mean, I'm not a spy, but of course, that's exactly what spies would say. Um, Others have said it almost boastfully, I think. And look, if, it, if they're just saying, we're a bit more relaxed here than in other churches, that's fine. But if it's even tending towards some kind of spiritual pride, where we look down on others because we've got the balance just right here, I think that's something to watch. In fact, any time we start to feel like we're superior or we look down on others, it should be setting off alarm bells in our souls. I'm really just saying let's not look down on others or separate ourselves from others, uh, be they more conservative, less conservative, more expressive, less expressive. Been at St. Matthews for a long time, relatively new here. Are we not all justified by faith in Christ Jesus? Don't we all live a new life through him and for him? Of course, where uh, Christian behaviour seems to threaten something at the very heart of the gospel, at a central truth level, then we really ought to stand up and say something. And say, so, you know, this goes to the actual heart of the gospel. We need to do something. But you want to make sure, of course, that the issue is actually central to the gospel about what makes us right with God rather than just your or my personal hobby horse. And so that will require us to exercise discernment, won't it? But I really think this stuff makes us or can make us humble and confident at the same time and hopefully without becoming arrogant 
Uh, it's it's a, a thing that unbelievers say about Christians all the time. I, I would be interested in Jesus, but man, his followers are so arrogant. But we can be confident, extremely confident, can't we? That the atoning death of Jesus is what actually justifies us. But because it's his work that justifies us, it has to keep us humble. We're not Christians because we're better than others. We're Christians because someone better than us, the Lord Jesus, swapped his plate of pluses in for our plate of minuses. Humble and confident with all people at the same time. Goodsy. Well, he's good, isn't he? But the gospel's great. And the gospel is what we really need to help us move forward. You know, when we realise that no one brings anything to the table and that we are equally justified by what Jesus has done for us and not what we do for him, that frees us up from needing to look down on other believers or others at all for that matter. Getting it right with God or getting right with God paves the way for getting it right with others. And friends, that's what it looks like to live by the gospel. And I'm going to pray that we live it out in our lives, so why don't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are justified by faith in what your Son has done for us. Forgive us for the times where we have trusted in things that we have done for him. And especially forgive us for the times when we've looked down on others who are different. And Lord, we want to be people who are humble and confident at the same time. So humble us, reminding us that we bring nothing to the table and make us confident in the great work of your Son, in whose name and for whose glory we pray. Amen.